Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Alright, Genesis chapter 27. On the board behind me, you can kind of see one suggestion of a way that you could partition up Genesis chapter 27. If chapter 27 was a play, these would be the different scenes that you would see in it, all right? And so I'm probably in the way a little bit here. Let me move out of the way. So Genesis chapter 27 has basically six different scenes that you could divide it into, uh, spanning the 46 verses or dividing up the 46 verses of those. And then each scene has basically two characters in it. So if you will, the first scene would be verses 1 through 4. That was four total verses. You had two characters, two characters being Isaac and Esau. The second scene, which is what we're going to be looking at today, verses 5 through 17, that's 13 different verses, not 12. It seems like it should be 12, right? 17 minus 5 is 12, but you have to count each of those verses, so it's actually 13. But anyway, 13 verses. The two characters are Rebecca and Jacob. Next week we'll be looking at Isaac and Jacob, then Isaac and Esau, then Rebecca and Jacob, and then Isaac and Rebecca. So two characters per scene, six scenes total. Some of the interesting things when you look at this, though, is you see that uh, Isaac, he shows up the most. He's in four of the, seven, uh, four of the six scenes. Rebecca shows up with three scenes, Jacob has three scenes, and Esau has two. All right, so of the two sons, which one's more prominent? Well, it seems like Jacob's in more scenes than Esau, so it's, you know, it sounds like Jacob is more prominent than Esau. It becomes even more clear when you look at the number of verses. If you look at the number of verses that Jacob's in, it's 13 plus 12 plus 5. 13 and 12 is 25 plus 5 is 30. Jacob is in scenes that constitute 30 of the verses out of the 46. If you look at Esau, what is he in? He's in 4 and 11. He's in a total of 15. Jacob has twice as many verses, or the scenes constituting twice as many verses for him as Esau does. I'm just having fun with this. this there's, <laughs> we're not going anywhere with this other than just looking at it right now. What's interesting, too, is when you look at how many verses are uh, comprised of the scenes that are Rebecca's in, she's in 13 here, 5, that's 18, plus 1 is 19. And then Isaac is in 4 and 12, that's 16, plus 11, 27, plus one more is 28. It looks like Jacob is in more, more verses than anybody else. Seems like the spotlight's on Jacob. It's moving to Jacob, right? All right. So that was just fun. We were just having fun with that. All right. <laughs> moving on to the other information. By way of review, the verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4, now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, that he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son, and he answered him, Here I am. And he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. And that was the second half of what we looked at last week were those four verses. We want to look at them now, reading them now, just like I did, to help us to remember what we were looking at, and that sets the stage for what's to come, which is what we're looking at today, starting in verse 5. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, 
Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Look, Esau my brother is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself, and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go get them for me. And he went and got them, and brought them to his mother, and his mother made savory food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So that's the material we're going to be looking at today. Verse 5 in particular right now. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. Thieves dropping. Maybe she's doing it accidentally, or maybe she's doing it deliberately. Does this remind you of anybody else that's ever been eavesdropping? Sarah, her late mother-in-law, right? She was eavesdropping at the tent the day the three visitors showed up, and Abraham was having a conversation. You remember, Sarah was listening when the words were given, this time next year, your wife's going to have a son. And she's like, really? Yeah, right. You remember that story? She was eavesdropping, and here we have Rebecca doing the same thing, doing a little eavesdropping. Rebecca hears something that apparently shocks her, apparently rocks her world. When she hears this conversation between her husband and her oldest son, it probably rocks her world because she's thinking of a time when she was pregnant. You remember when she was pregnant and she was, oh, what is going on inside of me? And God appeared to her and said, there's two people in your womb. They're going to become two nations, two great powerful nations. And what's going to happen is the older is going to serve the younger. So she's known all along that Jacob was the son of promise, not Esau. And here she hears the words of her husband saying, I'm going to bless you. I need you to do a few things, and then I'll be in a good mood, and I'll give you my blessing. And she's thinking, no, 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 no. That blessing is not for him. God said this blessing was to be for Jacob, not for Esau. It was supposed to go to the secondborn, not the firstborn. No, 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 this is a bad idea. What can I do? I could confront him. I could go to his face and say, this is a bad idea. You're making a mistake. Or instead, I'll do this surreptitiously. And she comes up with a plan. Jacob, get in here. <laughs> and she tells Jacob the plan. He's like, oh, I don't think this is a good idea. <laughs> right? So she comes up with this plan. We're going to help God out. Right? That's the plan. We're going to do this thing, and we're going to make God's will come to pass. As if her faith is weak in trusting that God can make it come to pass. And we're going to do it now. As if her faith is weak in that trusting God to do it in his own time. We learned last week, though, that God's ways are not our ways. And God's timing isn't our timing. His paths are not our paths. But here, that's what she's giving into. She's feeling like she needs to help God out. Verse 6, so Rebecca spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father... Speak to Esau, your brother, 
You notice the yours there. She doesn't say, I heard my husband speak to my oldest son. I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, and by the way, this word brother, as it appears here, this is the first time in this chapter that brother appears, but it's going to be such a theme, it's going to show up 13 times, all right? Brothers, you know, it's about the brothers, all right? And this is going to show up 13 times as we go through this chapter. Verse 7, bring me game. This is what the father, this is what she's saying. She overheard the father say to the son, bring me game and make savory food for me. By the way, mine says savory. Some of you guys might have something different there. In verse 7, what do you have? Delicious, all right? We got delicious over here. Anybody else have anything else? Anybody have NIV? Tasty. Tasty. NIV has tasty. So uh, she overhears Isaac saying to Esau, bring me game and make savory or tasty or delicious food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. The blessing, as we've talked about before, this would be irrevocable. This blessing that he was going to give, this was to go hand in hand with the birthright, which he has already got, right? Jacob's already got the birthright. Esau despised it. He treated it as if it was nothing, no big deal, and gave it away for a pot of soup. So Jacob's already got the birthright. He just needs the blessing. Mom hears that the blessing is about to be given to the older son who just doesn't seem to care. He just treats everything as if it's no big deal. And so the older son's going to get it? No way. Over my dead body is kind of what she's thinking. And then she adds this additional phrase, though, in verse 7. Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord. In the presence of the Lord was not something that Jacob actually ended up saying to Esau. She adds that little bit of information there. Uh, perhaps that's why that's on her mind. Perhaps she's thinking, this is all in the sight of God. He's about to give the blessing to the older son. It doesn't belong to Esau. It belongs to Jacob. In the sight of the Lord, this is a bad deal. In the sight of the Lord, this is the wrong thing to be happening. And so perhaps it's first and foremost on her mind, and that's perhaps why she introduces it in the sentence here. But that wasn't something that we found recorded in verse 4. And then verse 8, 27, 8. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. According to what I command you, obey my voice, obey my voice. Some of you might have a different version for something there. Anybody have something different than obey my voice? Listen carefully. Listen carefully. All right. Listen carefully. Any of the others? I have listen to me as I command you. Listen to me as I command you. Oh, very good. Do what I tell you, NIV has. New Living Translation says, do exactly as I tell you. And then the Holman says, obey every order I give you. So different versions handle this different ways. But it's basically she's bossing him around, as you would expect. (laughs) She's being a good Jewish mother. That's all she's doing. She's just telling her son what to do. (laughs) Esther's not contesting that either. John Hartley, in fact, he he goes so far as to say Rebecca dominated Jacob. All right, uh, she's issuing an order, a command. This is not a suggestion. You go and you do what I tell you to do. And this happens three times. This phrase is actually used here in verse eight. It's going to show up again today as we're going to read the verse thirteen, and then it shows up again in verse forty-three. She's about do this, do this, do this. I'm telling you to do this. Go do it. Go do this. Take care of this. Do what I tell you to do. Verse nine. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats. And I will make savory food. There's that word again, savory or tasty food for me. That, that, that savory thing's going to show up six times in the story. The savory food, the tasty food, the delicious food. All right. And I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. This idea of such as he loves, this shows up quite a few times in the story as well. But it's always about the food. It's never about the family. There's no love for the family, it seems like, between the members of the family. At least in conjunction with this word loves, it's about the food. Kind of strange. Just point that out. I don't know what to make of that. (laughs) You can make your own decision as to what what it's to be about. Uh, By the way, this word for food here, 
like I said, it shows up six times in this chapter, in chapter 27. There's only two other places in the entire Old Testament that it shows up. And it's in Proverbs, and it has to do with don't be deceived by the delicacies, by the savory food. All right? Interesting. The only other times that it shows up in the top. It's, it's suggesting that, ooh, there's something about giving in to the delicacies of the food. I mean, I think to myself, what kind of foods do I really crave? I mean, what are my savory foods? What are my delicious foods? And I go... You know, I'm a sandwich guy. I really like sandwiches. So those croissants that you get with the turkey and the little Swiss and the little lettuce and tomato and some avocado on them. Oh, those are so good. But you know what? I'm not going to be deceived into doing something based on whether you give me a croissant sandwich. All right? I, I tell you what, I really like ice cream. The only reason I exercise is because I like ice cream. And uh, I really like chocolate chip cookie dough. I mean, that's really good. I really like it. Uh, but I'm not going to allow chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream to lead me into areas where I'm going to compromise my walk with God. It doesn't have that kind of power over me. I remember reading a book when I was in college, though, that suggested that there are three big areas in our lives that we can be susceptible to. And everybody, it suggests that everybody is probably going to find themselves falling into one of these three categories. Either it's money or it's sex or it's power. Money or sex or power. What's your savory food? Watch out. Right? Take stock of what might be, and granted, you're probably, some of you might be thinking, wait, mine's not any of those three. Okay, whatever it is in your life, all right? Whatever your savory food is, don't allow it to lead you astray, all right? Whether it's chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream, or turkey croissant sandwiches, or money, sex, or power, or something more powerful, all right? Figure out what your savory foods are and don't let them lead you astray. Genesis 27.10 now, Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, that he may bless you before his death. It could be that her desire, Rebecca's desire to see this happen, that Jacob's going to go in there, and you see what's going on, right? They're going to trick dad. They're trying to trick dad and husband, all right? So I'm going to give you this, and you're going to go in here, and he recognizes that that's what he's being asked to do, that he's going to go in there and try to trick dad to get the blessing, all right? And then verse 11 he recognizing that he's going in there to trick him, says this, And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. So he's leading up to the, you know, this isn't right. This isn't going to work, all right? And he's making a reference to his brother being a hairy man. This is not the first time, remember, that we've run into the Esau being a hairy man. In fact, when he was born, turn to 2525. When he was born, what does it say about him over there in verse 25 of chapter 25? Somebody mind reading that one? <laughs> Jennifer's got it. All right, Jennifer, read it nice and loud. The first was very red at birth. He was covered with so much hair that one would think he was wearing a piece of clothing, so they called him Esau. There he is, right there. From the day he's born, he's so hairy, they describe him like a hairy garment. Oh my goodness, a hairy piece of clothing. That's a hairy little baby. All right, and apparently at this age, he's still hairy. So his concern, Jacob's concern is, I'm going to go in there. Dad's probably going to touch me, and he's going to know right away because I'm so different from my brother. My brother's got hair all over him. It's like this hairy garment. And when Dad touches me, that's not going to be the same. It's not going to feel the same. All right? And so what does he end up saying in verse 12? Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. Right? Because if the jig's up, right? If the charade is exposed, right, and he's found out, the blessing that he's hoping to get isn't going to be a blessing. It's probably going to be a curse. That's his concern. Notice his concern is not, I shouldn't do this, mom, it's wrong. His concern is, I might get caught. How many of our kids make decisions, and then they, they know enough to say, I'm sorry, 
And sometimes as parents, we have to bring to their attention, you're not apologizing because you know that was wrong. You're apologizing because you got caught, right? So that's his concern. His concern is I might get caught, not this is something wrong, that I shouldn't do this because it's wrong. By the way, where you see that phrase in mind, the New King James Version, it says, I shall seem to be a deceiver to him. I shall seem. Uh, The actual translation is, I shall be in his eyes like a mocker. All right? And the irony there is, in his eyes, he's blind. He can't see anymore. His eyes have gone dim. All right, so your translation committees have to come up with alternatives. A lot of times they'll try to come up with alternatives. So some of your versions might have something different than mine. Instead of, I shall seem to be a deceiver to him, some of them might say, in his sight, or he'll see, or I would appear. And then instead of deceiver, some of them say mocking him or to be tricking him or to deceiving him or playing a trick. All right. But here's this mention, I shall bring a curse on myself, a curse on myself and not a blessing. The word that's used here for curse is to make little or contemptible, to treat with contempt or to belittle something. All right. So I'm afraid I'm going to go in there and dad is going to lessen my stature. He's going to make me contemptible. I'm going to be held in contempt in his eyes, all right, if I find out, if I go in there. But what does Bob say in verse 13? But his mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. There's that second time. Go do what I tell you to do. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. She's saying, whatever is going to fall on you, just let it be on me, all right? I'll take the blame. Moving on to verse 14. And he went and got them. Sounds like Jacob gave in to mom's demands, right? (laughs) Apparently you're not going to disobey mom. Mom says, go get them. He went and he got them and brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory food. There's that savory food, such as his father loved. There's that love in association with the food and not with somebody in the family. It's kind of interesting that you see this Jacob guy, right? He's the guy that later on, I'm going to give you a glimpse into the future. Jacob, he's going to wrestle with God. And here he doesn't wrestle with mom or his own conscience. (laughs) He just lets it pretty much go. He gives a little bit of an objection, but not very much. Verse 15, Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. Why, Why would you grab Esau's clothes? If dad can't really see... What's the use in dressing up Jacob to look like? It's the smell of his clothes is exactly right. The smell of his clothes. You ever uh, go camping? You ever go camping and at the end of the camping trip, right? You go camping, you have your hot dogs over the fire. You have your s'mores over the fire. And then you get home and you take your dirty clothes and you're putting them out in the laundry. You're like, whoo, smells like camping smoke. Man, this stuff stinks. Clothes can carry that odor, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe that it doesn't have to be a bad odor. It could be a good odor. Maybe sometimes you'll smell... The clothes of a loved one. And you're like, oh, I smell I smell that person on these clothes. And it brings delight to my heart. You can smell a good smell on that one. There used to be a smell associated with my great-grandmother going to her house, right? And then even when we weren't at her house, we'd go to, and maybe visit her and go out to a restaurant or something. And we could, I could smell her house on her clothes. And it, you know, it just had a certain smell. And then there's a certain smell of my other grandparents. It always smells like Christmas because mm-hmm. we'd always go up there for Christmas. And so the clothes carry the smell. So, yes, Gabrielle is exactly right. Dress him up in the clothes that smell like his older brother. Because Isaac has lost his sight. He's lost his ability to see things clearly. So he's probably relying on other senses quite a bit more. All right, And sense of smell, it makes sense that that's 
no pun intended, it makes sense that that would be something that he would call in to assist him to make his appraisal of what's going on. Verse 16, and she put the skins of the kids of the goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. Do you see what's going on here? She made the meal out of the two young kids, the two young goats, right? Two baby goats, make a meal. You got this skin left over. Oh, wait, your brother's like a hairy garment? Your brother's like a hairy piece of clothing? Look what I got. We're going to put this on your arms so you got like some hair that your dad can touch. Hopefully he'll think it's your brother and you're going to smell like your brother. Oh, this is perfect. I sure hope it works. Scratch your fingers. Victor B. Hamilton says, Rebecca must believe that her husband is extremely incapacitated for he will not be able, she thinks, to distinguish between human hair and goatskins. She really thinks she can pull the wool over Isaac's eyes. Uh, I thought that was just too good to let go. I I had to read that one. (laughs) But they're going to be taking advantage of dad, and they're preying upon his inability to see clearly anymore. Later on in Leviticus and also in Deuteronomy, there's condemnation for the person who would exploit somebody based on their infirmity or based on their disability, exploiting that for personal gain or just to make fun of them or to mock them. So it makes it clear that this is not behavior that we should be engaging in. That should go without saying. But if this is, you know, misleading the blind is bad enough, how about dishonoring one's parents? I mean, it's in one of the top ten, right? It's one of the top ten. Don't dishonor your parents. Honor your parents. Um, And this is dishonoring their parents. Verse 17, then she gave the savory food and the bread. We had no mention of bread in verse 4. Uh, But here we have the addition of bread. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Kenneth Matthew says, Rebecca is the primary actor making Jacob little more than a puppet as she dresses him and pulls the strings that put him into action. There is no question that the deception would not have occurred if it had been left to Jacob alone. Perhaps receiving the divine oracle and experiencing the twins' bizarre births fueled Rebecca's obsession. She leaves nothing to chance or to providence when she prepares the player for his part. So it seems that Rebecca's faith is weak and she feels like she has to take matters into her own hands. Rebecca's faults or her wrongs in this story seem to be at least three things. Number one, she's not trusting God. She's not trusting God to work things out. Number two, she's scheming and trying to work out God's will before his time. So number one, she's not trusting God to work things out. Number two, she's scheming and trying to work out God's will before his time. And number three, she's leading Jacob to lie and deceive his own father. She's leading Jacob in this, all right? If he was a minor, we'd say contributing to the delinquency of a minor. But he's not. He's, he's older than a minor by now. Uh, but we have a tendency to do this ourselves as well. Sometimes we think we know what God's will is. And for goodness sakes, God, get on with it. If this is your will, why isn't it done yet? And we feel like we have to step in and help things out. We feel like we have to step in and help God out. We feel like we have to step in and do it now. Get it done now because it's the last moment. When God's timing is not our timing and his ways are not our ways. But we oftentimes want to solve it ourselves and say we're doing it for God's will. The ends don't justify the means and three wrongs don't make a right. Isn't it amazing that you look at this family and you go, what a mess. What a dysfunctional family. And I, I love how the Bible doesn't gloss over the failures and the imperfections and the blemishes of the people that God actually uses. This is going to be the family that eventually you follow this line and it's going to lead to the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior of the world. They come from these people. All right. And you go, wow, if God can use blemished people like that, then maybe there's still hope for me. And you, you've heard me say this before. I, I take courage. I take confidence in seeing in myself, I've got blemishes. I'm not a perfect person. I'm, I'm messed up in some areas. Yet God seems to be able to do things with people that have blemishes and people that are messed up in some areas. 
So a story like this, if nothing else, it's kind of encouraging to say God didn't just cut them off and say, let's start over with some perfect people. He actually is able to do something through these imperfect, uh, imperfect people. Matthew Henry says of this passage, Rebecca knew that the blessing was intended for Jacob and expected he would have it. But she wronged Isaac by putting a cheat on him. She wronged Jacob by tempting him to wickedness. She put a stumbling block in Esau's way and gave him a pretext for hatred to Jacob and to religion. All were to be blamed. It was one of those crooked measures often adopted to further the divine promises, as if the end would justify or excuse wrong means. Thus many have acted wrong under the idea of being useful in promoting the cause of Christ. The answer to all such things is that which God addressed to Abraham, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be thou perfect. And it was a very rash speech of Rebekah, upon me be thy curse, my son. Let your curse be upon me. I want to return to that idea and finish today's talk with that phrase that comes from her lips, from Rebekah's lips, as she utters, uh, as if it's no big deal, let your curse be on me. Let your curse be upon me. It's as if she's saying, let it be on me. I'll take the blame. I'll take the punishment. No big deal. Despising and mocking, belittling and scoffing the idea of God's curse upon her, right? One of the things that uh, we'll find out as we go through the story, the story is going to end with Jacob being sent away. And he's going to be gone a long time. And there's no record that he ever saw mom again. It could be that part of the curse comes out in that and that he never gets to see mom. This is mom and son. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And there's going to be a, a splitting of them and that there's no record of them ever coming together again after this. But when she says that, when she's just kind of haphazardly throwing that out there, let it be upon me or blame it on me, I'll take the punishment, no big deal. It reminds me of a, another place in the Bible. Instead of an individual saying, you know what, let it be upon me, no big deal, I'll take the punishment. It's a group. It's a group of people that say it. And as I read these verses, you're going to recognize right away the context. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And who was the just person? It was Jesus. And what was the situation? They were calling for his crucifixion. The crowd is calling for his crucifixion. And what does the crowd answer to Pilate? In verse 25, And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and our children. As if to say, let it be on us. Blame it on us. We'll take the punishment and treating it as no big deal. Even today when you witness to others and you can get them to a point where they would admit with their own mouths that they've lied, that they would admit with their own mouths that they've stolen, that they would admit with their own mouths that they've lusted after a man or a woman and, and committed adultery in their heart, that they've blasphemed God, that they would admit with their own mouths that if they were to stand before God on Judgment Day, and if God was to judge them by the Ten Commandments, would they be guilty or innocent? They'd say guilty. And then you'd say, well, then does that suggest to you you're going to go to heaven or hell? And they would say, hell, as if it's no big deal, as if the curse upon their lives is no big deal. But it is a big deal. We do the same things too sometimes. Anytime that we enter into sin and we treat sin lightly, we're either not recognizing or not caring that that curse that's called upon by our actions, by our committing those sins, that curse on us calls for our condemnation and we treat it as no big deal. And then if you would suggest to somebody, well, how are you going to get out of that? How are you going to get out from under being under a curse? 
And for some people, they say, well, I'm going to work hard. And I'm a good person now. That was a long time ago. I was a bad person. I was a bad person for a long time. And now I'm a good person. Really? You're going to be a good person. And, and you're hoping what? That that's going to outweigh the bad, right? A lot of us think that, oh, someday I'm going to stand before God and God's going to have these scales. He's going to have my good deeds and my bad deeds. And he's going to weigh them out. And that's not how it works. Because any single one bad deed on this side is more than enough to outweigh all your good deeds. There's no working your way out of this cursedness. There's no, I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. And what would that be? Okay, let's see. Um, I'm going to find out what God would say of me and have of me to do. I'm going to find out what God's law says, and I'm going to follow all of God's laws. I'm going to do what God's law says, and that will make up for all those bad choices. But Galatians 3.10 says this, But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under a curse. So it seems like all that hard work you want to do to get out from being under that curse, you're still under the curse. Why is that? Because it says this, Scripture says, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. All the commands. That means if you break one, you're a lawbreaker. Paul's argument is you break one, you're a lawbreaker. A lawbreaker is under the curse. You're under a curse. Those words are written 2,000 years ago, but they're just as relevant today. As people would hear those, those words are not antiquity that doesn't have any relevance for our daily lives now. It does. Anybody that tries to earn their way to heaven is under that same curse. We're under the same curse. Acts 2.36. Acts 2.36 is a passage that, uh, you know, if you were to say when you come to the realization that you're, you're living under this curse, there's nothing you can do in your good works to earn your way to heaven, and then what? You would cry out, what can I do then? What can I do? And Peter, he's talking to a group. It's about 50 days after that whole crucifixion scene. And Peter's talking to a crowd, right? He's giving a sermon. It's like five minutes long. It's a short sermon. And in that short sermon, at the end, the crowd goes, oh, what should we do? Here's Peter's words. In verse 36, Peter says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So he's saying, whom you crucified. Some of these people in this crowd, we're there 50 days earlier, perhaps even in the crowd that called for the crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter is calling them on that. And he's saying, this same Jesus whom you crucified, you guys were part of that crowd 50 days ago, that same Jesus, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And so they're confronted with their recognition that they've done wrong and they're under a curse. What do they end up saying in verse 37? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Right, Because a person who recognizes, I stand in a place that's cursed, and there's nothing I can do to earn my way to heaven, what does he say? What does Peter say in reply? Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. What does remission of sins mean? It's for forgiveness of sins. We need forgiveness. If we're standing accursed, what do we need? We need forgiveness. But Peter, these are the words of Peter. Peter can't forgive me. Who can forgive sins but God alone? If you look at the words of Jesus on the cross, Luke chapter 23, verses 33 and 34, when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. If only God can forgive sins, it looks like the Son of God is asking the Father, forgive them. And you suppose those words, forgive them, were only for the, the small group of people that held the hammer and drove the nails into his hands. This is the same God that offers us the same forgiveness, that calls upon his Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He became a curse for us. Do you realize that? 
Jesus, in dying for our sins upon the cross, became a curse for us. Paul says this in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's as if Jesus said of our sins, of the curse upon us, let it be upon me. I'll take the punishment. And make no mistake about it, this is a very big deal. By his death in our place and taking the punishment for our sins and becoming a curse for us, Jesus afforded us the opportunity to repent of our sins and go from sinners and enemies of God to friends of God. Sinners, enemies of God, to become friends of God. Romans 5, 8 through 11 says this, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. So when I read Rebecca's casual words where she says, let your curse be on me. I think of myself at the foot of the cross, humbly and hardly even able to look up, recognizing I'm under a curse and I'm in my sins. And as if I'm in that place and, and Jesus whispers to me loud enough for me to hear, let your curse be upon me. And he would say that to any one of us as an invitation to repent. Let your curse be upon me. That's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you as your son petitioned you to forgive us that you do extend to us. You heard his words and extend to us that forgiveness that's available to us. Help us, Lord, to repent of our sins. And if we've never been baptized, to get baptized too. Help us to recognize the ominous place where we once stood under that curse demanding our condemnation and recognizing how great the love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we could be called the sons of God. Thank you, Lord, for offering so great a salvation. Please help us to take this truly good news and to share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen.